Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Travelcast, episode 400. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Episode 400, folks, and you know we like to do these centennial episodes up big. And it's also March, and here on the Travelcast, that means Women and Aliens Month, the eighth annual, in fact, a month of original work that we commission by women writers about aliens. I'm excited to launch the month with a very exciting two-part production by one of my favorite authors, James Tiptree Jr., the novella We Who Stole the Dream. When popular science fiction writer of the 60s and 70s, James Tiptree Jr., thought of by many then as one of the darlings of science fiction, publicly revealed that she was actually a woman named Alice Bradley Sheldon, readers and colleagues of the time were predictably blown away. James Tiptree Jr. was a pseudonym, you see, and some people even suspected that, assuming it was maybe somebody in the CIA. And they were close but they never suspected it to be a chick. And thus, we begin the fascinating life of Alice Bradley Sheldon. An intelligence specialist and spy during World War II, she also later raised chickens, because why not? After her time in the CIA, at the age of 40, Sheldon went on to college and earned a PhD in experimental psychology. Again, because why not? 40. A Hugo and Nebula Award winner, Sheldon entered the 70s when women finally began to erupt as a tour de force in the science fiction genre as a household name. She even had another particularly badass pseudonym that she wrote under, Raccoona Sheldon. Because, you guessed it, why not? A quintessential specimen of weirdo, Sheldon grew up taking on safaris with her mom in Africa, later went on to be a successful artist who was featured at the Conquering Gallery at age 24, and despite being admittedly brooding, quirky, and introverted, was also never one to shy away from living an interesting story. She compared herself to her typical story modus operandi plot, saying, there's this backward little type, and he's doing some gray little task and believing like they tell him, and one day he starts to vomit, and he rushes up a mountain trying to find a cure, usually to his doom. Robert Silverberg compared her writing to Ernest Hemingway, and she made no public appearances. Sheldon's work is no-holds-barred for sure, as one might expect from someone writing with a pseudonym, but it's interesting to me that she so successfully nailed careers in painting, the military, the CIA, agriculture, and psychology, but it was science fiction writing that she felt like she most needed a male alter ego. If you've never read her work, it's dark, it's sexual, it's horrific, it's stuff you don't forget if you have the balls to finish it. Sheldon had a self-admitted darkness in her and burgeoning mental health issues that she herself recognized as a trained psychologist. 
The doctor is giving me first pink pills, then purple pills, now puce-colored pills, she once was quoted saying. So far, nobody will give me what I deepest crave, a lead-nosed 38 bullet in the parietal lobe. I dream about oblivion like other people dream of good sex. In 1987, at age 71, after taking care of her blind, non-functioning, bedridden husband for years, and again, never one to back away from an interesting story or tragic conclusion, Sheldon made that wish, which so epitomizes her writing, come true. She took a shotgun and killed her husband before then taking her own life the same way. The pair were found together in bed. Whew. Isaac Asimov praised her work. Harlan Ellison, Philip K. Dick, people were convinced she was J.D. Salinger using a pen name to write SF. Ellison said in 1968, Tiptree is the single most important new writer in science fiction today. Not me, not Samuel Delaney, not James Blish, not Philip K. Dick, none of us. Tiptree. Robert Silverberg, who was probably the most shocked of all to find out later that Tiptree was a woman, famously wrote, There's something ineluctably masculine about Tiptree's writing, adding that he envisioned Tiptree as, quote, a man who has seen much of the world and understands it well. And if you've never heard of her or one of her stories before, consider that problem remedied now with this year's Women and Aliens Month opener and part one of this week's story, We Who Stole the Dream. I've always wanted to publish a Tiptree story on the show. I've mentioned on the podcast before that she's one of my top three favorite writers, but I've never been able to make it happen until now. And even better, this is the first time this story will appear on the internet for free. So feel free to share it. It's a cool one, a space opera about how cruelty so often comes hand in hand with power. It's brutal, not for the weak-hearted, but I think you'll like it. So without further ado, we bring you We Who Stole the Dream, Part 1, by James Tiptree Jr. Dream by James Tiptree Jr. The children could survive only 12 minims in the sealed containers. Jill Shat pushed the heavy cargo loader as fast as she dared through the darkness, praying that she would not attract the attention of the Terran guard under the floodlights ahead. The last time she passed, he'd roused and looked at her with his frightening pale alien eyes. Then, her truck had carried only fermenting containers full of amlat fruit. Now, curled in one of the containers, lay hidden her only born, her son, Jemnal. Four minims at least had already been used up in the loading and weighing sheds. It would take four more, maybe five, to push the load out to the ship, where her people would send it up to the cargo conveyor, and more time yet for her people in the ship to find Jemnal and rescue him. Jill Shat pushed faster, her weak, gray, humanoid legs trembling. As she came into the lighted gate, the Terran turned his head and saw her. Jill Shat cringed away, trying to make herself even smaller, trying not to run. 
Oh, why had she not taken Jemnal out in an earlier load? The other mothers had taken theirs, but she had been afraid. At the last minute, her faith had failed. It had not seemed possible that what had been planned so long, prepared for so painfully, could actually be coming true. That her people, her poor, feeble dwarf Jolani, could really overpower and subdue the mighty Terrans in that cargo ship. Yet there the big ship stood in its cone of lights, all apparently quiet. The impossible must have been done, or there would have been disturbance. The other young must be safe. Yes, now she could make out empty cargo trucks hidden in the shadows. Their pushers must have already mounted into the ship. It was really and truly happening, their great escape to freedom or to death. And now she was almost past the guard, almost safe. Oi! She tried not to hear the harsh Terran bark, hurried faster, but in three giant strides he loomed up before her so that she had to halt. You deaf? he asked in the Terran of his time and place. Jill Shat could barely understand. She'd been a worker in the far Amlat fields. All she could think of was the time draining inexorably away while he tapped the containers with the butt of his weapon, never taking his eyes off of her. Her huge, dark-lashed Jolani gaze implored him mutely. In her terror, she forgot the warnings, and her small, dove-gray face contorted in that rictus of anguish the Terrans call a smile. Weirdly, he smiled back, as if in pain, too. I work in, sir, she managed to bring out. A minim gone now, almost two. If he did not let her go at once, her child was surely doomed. Almost she could hear a faint mew, as if the drugged baby was already struggling for breath. I go, sir, men in ship, Angie. Her smile broadened, dimpled in agony to what she could not know was a mask of allure. Let him wait. You know, you're not bad looking for a Julu Muli. He made a strange <clears throat> sound in his throat. It's my duty to check the native for arms. Take that off. He poked up her dinghy, Jelma, with a snout of his weapon. Three minims. She tore the Jelma off, exposing her wide-hipped, short-legged little gray form with its double dugs and bulging pouch. A few heartbeats more and it would be too late. Jemnal would die. She could still save him. She could force the clamps and rip that smothering lid away. Her baby was still alive in there. But if she did so, all would be discovered. She would betray them all. Jela Sanatha, she prayed. Let me have love's courage. Oh, my Jolani, give me strength to let him die. I pay for my unbelief. Turn around. Grinning in grief and horror, she obeyed. That's better. You look almost human. Ah, oh, Lord, I've been out too long here. Come on. She felt his hand on her buttocks. You think that's fun, eh? What's your name, Mooley? The last possible minim had run out. Numb with despair, Jillshot murmured a phrase that meant, Mother of the Dead. Jubly woobly, his voice changed. Well, well, where'd you come from anyway? Too late, too late. Lay the damaged female minced swiftly to them. Her face was shaved and painted pink and red. She swirled open a bright gelma to reveal a body grotesquely tinted and bound to imitate the pictures the Terrans worshipped. Her face was wreathed in a studied smile. Me lie, 
She flirted her fingers to release the flower essence the Terran seemed to love. You want I make fik-fik for you? The instant Jilshat felt the guard's attention leave her, she flung her whole strength against the heavy truck and rushed naked with it out across the endless field, staggering beyond the limit of breath and heart, knowing it was too late, unable not to hope. Around her in the shadows, the last burden Jolani filtered toward the ship. Behind them, the guard was being drawn by Lei into the shelter of the gatehouse. At the last moment, he glanced back and scowled. Hey, those Julu shouldn't be going into that ship that way. Men say come, say move cans. Lei reached up and caressed his throat, slid skillful Jolani fingers into his turgid alien crotch. Fick, fick, she crooned, smiling irresistibly. The guard shrugged and turned back to her with a chuckle. The ship stood unwatched. It was an aging Amlat freighter, a flying factory carefully chosen because its huge cargo hold was heated and pressurized to make the fruit ferment en route so that some enzyme the Terrans valued would be ready when it made port. That hold could be lived in, and the Amlat fruit would multiply a thousandfold in the food converter cycle. Also, the ship was the commonest type to visit here. Over the decades, the Jolani ship cleaners had been able to piece together detail by painful detail an almost complete image of the operating controls. This one was old and shabby. Its Terran star of empire and identifying symbols were badly in need of paint. Of its name, the first word had been eroded away, leaving only the alien letters, N's dream. Some Terran's dream once. It was now the Jolani's. But it was not Lei's dream. Ahead of Lei lay only pain and death. She was useless as a breeder. Her short twin birth channels had been ruptured by huge, hard Terran members, and the delicate, spongy tissue that was the Jolani womb had been damaged beyond recovery. So Lei had chosen the greater love, to serve her people with one last torment. In her hair flower was the poison that would let her die when the dream was safely away. It was not safe yet. Over the guard's great bulk upon her, Lei could glimpse the lights of the other ship on the field, the station's patrol cruiser. By the worst of luck, it was just readying for its periodic off-planet reconnaissance. To our misfortune, when the dream was loaded, the Terran warship stood ready to lift off so that it could intercept us before we could escape by entering what the Terrans called Tau space. Here we failed. Old Jalen hobbled as smartly as he could out across the patrol section of the spaceport to the cruiser. He was wearing the white jacket and female gelma in which the Terrans dressed their mess servants, and he carried a small napkin-wrapped object. Overhead, three fast-moving moonlets were converging, sending triple shadows across his frail form. They faded as he came into the lights of the cruiser's lock. A big Terran was doing something to the cruiser's lock tumblers. As Jalen struggled up the giant steps, he saw that the spacer wore a sidearm. Good. Then he recognized the spacer, and an un-Jolani flood of hatred made his twin hearts pound. 
This was the Terran who had raped Jalun's granddaughter and broken her brother's spine with a kick when the boy came to rescue her. Jalen fought down his feelings, grimacing in pain. Jalus and Atha, let me not offend oneness. Where you think you're going, Smiley? What you got there? He did not recognize Jalen. To Terrans, all Jolani looked alike. Commander say for you, sir. Say celebration. Say take to officer first. Let's see. Trembling with the effort to control himself, smiling painfully from ear to ear, Jalen unfolded a corner of the cloth. The spacer peered, whistled. If that's what I think it is, sweet stars of home, Lieutenant, he shouted, hustling Jalen up and into the ship. Look what the boss sent us. In the wardroom, the lieutenant and another spacer were checking over the microsource charts. The lieutenant was also wearing a weapons belt. Good again. Listening carefully, Jalen's keen Jolani hearing could detect no other Terrans on the ship. He bowed deeply, still smiling his hate, and unwrapped his packet before the lieutenant. Nestled in snowy linen lay a small, tear-shaped amethyst flask. Commander say for you, say, must drink now, is open. The lieutenant whistled in his turn and picked the flask up reverently. Do you know what this is, old Smiley? No, sir, Jalen lied. What is it? The other spacer asked. Jalen could see that he was very young. This, Sonny, is the most unbelievable, most precious, most delectable drink that will ever pass your dewy gullet. Haven't you heard of star tears? The youngest stared at the flask, his face clouding. And Smiley's right, the lieutenant went on. Once it's open, you have to drink it right away. Well, I guess we've all done what we need to do tonight. I must say the old man let us a generous go. Why did he say he sent this, Julu boy? Celebration, sir, says is his celebration this day. Some celebration? Well, let us not quibble over miracles. John, produce two liquor cups, clean ones. Yes, sir. The big spacer rummaged in the lockers overhead. Standing child-size among these huge Terrans, Jalen was overcome again by the contrast between their size and strength and perfection and his own weak-limbed, frail, slope-shouldered little form. Among his people he had been accounted a strong youth, even now he was among the ablest, but to these mighty Terrans, Jolani's strength was a joke. Perhaps they were right. Perhaps he was of an inferior race, fit only to be slaves. But then Jalen remembered what he knew and straightened his short spine. The younger spacer was saying something. Lieutenant, sir, if that's really star tears, I can't drink it. You can't drink it? Why not? I promised. I, uh, I swore. You promised such an insane thing? My mother, the youngest said miserably. He shouted with laughter. (laughs) You're a long way from home now, son, the lieutenant said kindly. What am I saying, John? I'd be delighted to take yours, but I just can't bear to see a man pass up the most beautiful thing in life, and I mean bar none. Forget mommy and prepare your soul for bliss, and that's an order. 
All right, smiley boy, equal shares. If you spill one drop, I'll dicty both of your little plonks, you hear? Oh, yes, sir. Carefully, Jalen poured the loathsome liquor into the small cups. You ever tasted this, Julu? No, sir. And you never will. All right, now scat. Ah, well, here's to our next station, huh? May it have real live poogee on it. Jalen went silently back into the shadows of the gangway, paused where he could see the spacers lift their cups and drink. Hate and disgust choked him. Though he'd seen it before, Terrans eagerly drinking star tears. It was the very symbol of their oblivious cruelty, their fall from Jela Sanatha. They could not be excused for ignorance. Too many of them had told Jalen how star tears were made. It was not tears precisely, but the body secretions of a race of beautiful, frail-winged creatures on a very distant world. Under physical or mental pain, their glands exuded this liquid which the Terrans found so deliciously intoxicating. To obtain it, a mated pair were captured and slowly tortured to death in each other's sight. Jalen had been told atrocious details, which he could not bear to recall. Now he watched, marveling that the hate burning in his eyes did not alert the Terrans. He was quite certain that the drug was tasteless and did no harm. Careful trials over the long years had proved that... The problem was that it took from two to five minims to work. The last affected Terran might have time to raise an alarm. Jalen would die to prevent that, if he could. The two spacers' faces had changed. Their eyes shone. You see, son? The lieutenant asked huskily. The boy nodded, his rapt gaze on nowhere. Suddenly he lunged up and said thickly, What? then slumped back down with his head on one outstretched arm, still mildly aware. "'Hey! Hey, John!' the lieutenant rose, reaching toward him, but then he too was falling heavily across the wardroom table. This left only the staring boy. Would he act? Would he seize the collar? Jalen gathered himself to spring, knowing he could do little but die in those Terran hands. But the boy only repeated, "'What? What?' Lost in a private dream, he leaned back, slid downward, and began to snore. Jalen darted up to them and snatched the weapons from the two huge, lax bodies. Then he scrambled up the cruiser's control room, summoning all the memorized knowledge that had been gained over the slow years. Yes, that was the transmitter. He wrestled its hood off and began firing into its works. The blast of the weapon frightened him, but he kept on till it was all charred and melted. The flight computer next. He had trouble burning in, but soon achieved what seemed to be sufficient damage. A nearby metal case fastened to what was now the ceiling bothered him. It had not been included in his instructions because the Jolani had not learned of the cruiser's new backup capability. Jalen gave it only a perfunctory blast and turned to the weapons console. Emotions he had never felt before were exploding at him, obscuring sight and reason. He fired at wild random across the board, concentrating on whatever would explode or melt, not realizing that he had left the heavy weapons wiring essentially undamaged. 
pinned up pictures of the grotesque Terran females which had done his people so much harm, he flamed to ashes. Then he did the most foolish of things. Instead of hurrying straight back through the wardroom, he paused to stare at the slack face of the spacer who had savaged his young. His weapon was hot in his hand. Madness took Jalen. He burned through the face and skull. The release of a lifetime's helpless hatred seemed to drive him on wings of flame. Beyond all reality, he killed the other Terran without pausing and hurried on down. He was quite insane with rage and self-loathing when he reached the reactor chambers, forgetting the hours of painful memorization of the use of the Waldo arms, he went straight in through the shielding port to the pile itself. Here he began to tug with his bare hands at the dampening rods, as if he were a suited Terran, but his Jolani strength was far too weak, he could barely move them. He raged, fired at the pile, tugged again, his body bare to the full fury of radiation. When presently the rest of the Terran crew poured into the ship, they found a living corpse clawing madly at the pile. He had removed all four rods. Instead of a meltdown, he had achieved nothing at all. The engineer took one look at Jalen through the vitrex and swung the heavy Waldo arm over to smash him into the wall. Then he replaced the rods, checked his readouts, and signaled, ready to lift. There was also great danger that the Terrans would signal to one of their mighty warships, which alone can send a missile seeking through Tau's space. An act of infamy was faced. The Elder Jackal entered the communications chamber just as the Terran operator completed his regular transmission for the period. That had been carefully planned. First, it would ensure the longest possible interval before other stations became alarmed. Equally important, the Jolani had been unable to discover a way of entry to the chamber when the operator was not there. Hey, Pops, what do you think you're doing? You know you're not supposed to be in here. Scoot! Jackal smiled broadly in the pain of his heart. This Terran, Shigan, had been kind to the Jolani in his rough way, kind and respectful. He knew them by their proper names. He had never abused their females. He fed cleanly and did not drink abomination. He had even inquired with decorum into the sacred concepts, Jela Sanatha, the living within honor, the oneness of love. Old Jack Call's flexible cheekbones drew upward in a beaming rictus of shame. Oh, gentle friend, I come to share with you, he said ritually. Yeah, you know, I don't really dewey your speech. Now you gotta get out. Jack Call knew no Terran word for sharing. Perhaps there was none. Friend, I bring you a thing. Yeah, well, bring it to me outside, all right? Seeing that the old Jolani did not move, the operator rose to usher him out, but memory stirred. His understanding of the true meaning of that smile penetrated. What is it, Jekyll? What you got there? 
Jakael brought out the heavy load in his hands forward. Death. What? Where'd you get that? Oh, holy mother, get it away from me. That thing's armed. The pin is out. The laboriously pilfered and hoarded excavating plastic had been well and truly assembled. The igniter had been properly attached. In the ensuing explosion, fragments of the whole transmitter complex, mingled with those of Jakael and his Terran friend, rained down across the Terran compound and out amongst the Amlot fields. Spacers and station personnel erupted out of the post bars, at first uncertain in the darkness what to do. Then they saw torches flaring and bobbing around the transformer sheds. Small gray figures were running, leaping, howling, throwing missiles that flamed. The Croton Jewlews are after the power plant! Come on! Other diversions were planned. The names of the old ones and damaged females who died thus for us are inscribed on the sacred rolls. We can only pray that they found quick and merciful deaths. The station commander's weapons belt hung over the chair by his bed. All through the acts of shame and pain, Sosalal had been watching it, watching for her chance. If only Bislot, the commander's boy, could come in to help her. But he could not. He was needed at the ship. The commander's lust was still unsated. He gulped a drink from the vile little purple flask and squinted his small Terran eyes meaningfully at her. So Salal smiled and offered her trembling, grotesquely disfigured body once more. But no, he wanted her to stimulate him. She set her empathetic Jolani fingers, her shuddering mouth, to do their work, hoping that the promised sound would come soon, praying that the commander's communicator would not buzz with the news of the attempt failed. Why was it taking so long? She wished she could have one last sight of the Terran's great magical star projection, which showed at one far side those blessed, incredible symbols of her people. Somewhere out there, so very far away, was Jolani home space. Maybe even, she thought wildly, while her body labored at its hurtful task, maybe a Jolani empire. Now he wished to enter her. She was almost inured to the pain. Her damaged body had healed in a form pleasing to this Terran. She was only the commander's fourth girl. There had been other commanders, some better, some worse, and girls beyond counting, as far back as the Jolani records ran. It had been girls like herself and boys like Bislat who had first seen the great three-dimensional luminous star swarms in the commander's private room and brought back to their people the unbelievable news. Somewhere, a Jolani homeland still lived. 
greatly daring, a girl had once asked about those Jolani symbols. Her commander had shrugged. Oh, that stuff? It's the hell and gone on the other side of the system. Take half your life to get there. I don't know a thing about them. Probably somebody just stuck them in. They aren't Julus, that's for sure. Yet there the symbols blazed, tiny replicas of the ancient Jolani sun in splendor. It could mean only one thing, that the old myth was true, that they were not natives to this world, but descendants of a colony left by Jolani who traveled space as the Terrans did, and those great Jolani yet lived. If only they could reach them. But how? Could someone send a message? All but impossible, and even if they could, how could they find rescue from them in the midst of Terran might? No, hopeless as it seemed, they must get themselves out and reach Jolani's space by their own efforts. And so the great plan had been born and grown over years and lifetimes. Painfully, furtively, bit by bit, Jolani's servants and bar attendants and ship cleaners and omelette loaders had discovered and brought back the magic numbers and their meaning. The Tau space coordinates that would set them to those stars. From discarded manuals, from spacers' talk, they had pieced together the fantastic concept of Tau space itself. Sometimes an almighty Terran would find a naive Jolani question amusing, perhaps amusing enough to answer. Those allowed inside the ship brought back tiny fragments of the workings of Terran magic. Jolani, who were humble boys by day and girls by night, became clandestine students and teachers, fitting together the mysteries of their overlords, reducing them from magic to comprehension. Preparing, planning in minutest detail, sustained only by substanceless hope, they readied for an epic, incredible flight. And now the lived-for moment had come. Or had it? Why was it taking so long? Suffering as she had so often smilingly suffered before, so Salal despaired. Surely nothing would, nothing could change. It was all a dream. All would go on as it always had, the degradation and the pain. The commander indicated new desires, careless with grief. So Salal complied. Watch it! He slapped her head so that her vision spun. Excuse me, sir. You're getting a bit long to the tooth, Sosie. He meant that literally. Mature Jolani teeth were large. You better start training a younger Mooley <laughs> or have him pulled. Yes, sir. You scratch me again and I'll pull him myself. Holy Jebulabar, what's that? A flash from the window lit the room, followed by a rumbling that rattled the walls. The commander tossed her aside and ran to look out. It had come. It was really true. Hurry. She scrambled to the chair. Good God almighty, it looks like the transmitter blew. What? He had whirled toward his communicator, his clothes, and found himself facing the mouth of his own weapon held in Sosalal's trembling hands. He was too astounded to react. When she pressed the firing stud, he dropped, with his chest blown open, the blank frown still on his face. 
Sosalal, too, was astounded, moving in a dream. She had killed, really killed a Terran, a living being. I come to share, she whispered ritually. Gazing at the fiery light in the window, she turned the weapon to her own head and pressed the firing stud. Nothing happened. What could be wrong? The dream broke, leaving her in dreadful reality. Frantically, she poked and probed the strange object. Was there some sort of mechanism needed to reset? She was unaware of the meaning of the red charge dot. The commander had grown too careless to recharge his weapon after his last game hunt. Now it was empty. Sosalal was still struggling with the thing when the door burst open and she felt herself seized and struck all but senseless. Amid the boots and the shouting, her wrist glands leaked scarlet Jolani tears as she foresaw the slow and merciless death that would now be hers. They had just started to question her when she heard it, the deep rolling rumble of a ship lifting off. The dream was away. Her people had done it. They were saved. Through her pain, she heard a Terran voice say, Julu Town's empty. All the young ones are on that ship. Under the blows of her tormentors, her twin hearts leapt with joy. But a moment later, all exultation died. She heard the louder fires of the Terran cruiser bursting into the sky. The dream had failed then. They would be pursued and killed. Desolate, she willed herself to die in the Terran's hands, but her life resisted, and her broken body lived long enough to sense the thunderous concussion from the sky that must be the destruction of her race. She died believing all hope was dead. Still, she had told her questioners nothing. Great dangers came to those who essayed to lift the dream. If you monkeys are seriously planning to try and fly this ship, you better set that trim level first or we'll all be killed. It was the Terran pilot speaking, the third to be captured, so they had needed to stop his mouth. Go on, push it. It's in landing attitude now. That red one there. I don't want to be smashed up. Young Javad, dwarfed in the huge pilot's chair, desperately reviewed his laboriously built-in memory engram of the ship's controls. Red lever, red lever. He was not quite sure. He twisted around to look at their captives, incredible to see the three great bodies bound and helpless against the wall, which should soon become the floor. From the seat beside him, Bislat held his weapon trained on them. It was one of the two stolen Terran weapons which they had long hoarded for this, their greatest task, the capture of the Terrans on the dream. The first spacer had not believed they were serious until Javad had burned through his boots. Now he lay groaning intermittently, muffled by the gag. When he caught Javad's gaze, he nodded vehemently in confirmation of the pilot's warning. I swear to you I left it in land and attitude, the pilot repeated. If you try to lift that way, we'll all die. The third captive nodded too. 
Javad's mind raced over and over the remembered pattern. The dream was an old, unstandardized ship. Javad continued with the ignition procedure, not touching the red lever. Push it, you fool! The pilot shouted. Holy mother, do you want to die? Bizlat was looking nervous from Javad to the Terrans. He too had learned the patterns of the Amlat freighters, but not as well. Javad, are you sure? I cannot be certain. I, I think on the old ships this is an emergency device which will change or empty the fuel so they cannot fire what they call abort. See the Terran symbol, A. Eh? The pilot had caught the words. Hey, it's not abort, it's attitude. A for attitude. Attitude, you monkey. Push it over or we'll crash. The other two nodded urgently. Javad's whole body was flushed blue and trembling with tension. His memory seemed to recede, blur, and spin. Never before had a Jolani disbelieved, disobeyed a Terran order. Desperate, he clung to one fading fragment of a yellow chart in his mind. I think not, he said slowly, taking his people's whole life in his delicate fingers. He punched the ignition and lift sequence into real time. Clickings, a clank of metal below, a growling hiss that grew swiftly to an intolerable roar beneath them. The old freighter creaked, strained, giving a sickening lurch. Were they about to crash? Javad's soul died a thousand deaths. But the horizon around them stayed level. The dream was shuddering upward, straight up, moving faster and faster as she staggered and leapt towards space. All landmarks fell away. They were in flight. Javad crushed against his supports, exulted. They had not crashed. He'd been right. The Terran had been lying. All outer sound fell away. The dream had cleared atmosphere and was driving for the stars, but not alone. was part one of our story, We Who Stole the Dream, by James Tiptree Jr. Tune in soon for part two. Find out what happens to our beloved Jolani. And that's our show this week, folks. Remember, the Drabblecast has brought you the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Blog about us, write us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, spread the weird. If you enjoyed our show, and you enjoy our show in general, please consider donating to the Drabblecast. It's your donations that keep us going. We greatly appreciate it. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Tristan Tolhurst. Our program this week was brought to you by Sandra O'Dell, Samantha Henderson, Bo Kyer, Jason Smith, Melissa Harvey, Jen Fisher, a curious bag on the side of the road that smells of carrion, Tom Baker, Zimmerman Bledsoe, and yours truly, Norm Sherman. Reminding you, great dangers come to those who essay to lift the dream. Tip jaw and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An hour ago this place was loaded. Noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke
Yes, words are all splurred when sloke. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.